and welcome to another interview with In Theory, the podcast of the JHI blog. I am Luna Sarti, a PhD candidate at University of Pennsylvania, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Lydia Barnett, Associate Professor of History at Northwestern University, about her new book, After the Flood, Imagining the Global Environment in Early Modern Europe published by Johns Hopkins University Press in 2019. The book has been honored with the Morris D. Forkosch Prize from the Journal of the History of Ideas for the best first book in intellectual history. The book discusses how the story of Noah's flood has been understood, interpreted, and retold by different authors between the late 16th and the early 18th century, and illuminates the flood's complicated legacy in the emergence of a global environmental consciousness. I started by asking about the origin of the project and how Professor Barnett came to focus on the story of Noah's flood as a site for thinking about human agency, environmental disasters, and scale. So I guess this book got started with the flood, really with Hurricane Katrina and the flooding of New Orleans. In 2005, I was just starting my second year of grad school, and in addition to following it in the news, as everybody was, uh, I was already interested in the history of earth science and the history of disasters, and seeing the way that flooding was tied to environmental devastation, it was a man-made disaster, it was about racial disparities, kind of seeing all of that in real time uh, made me kind of reflect on my own emerging research agenda about floods and disasters more generally as kind of sites of entanglement between science and politics and religion. I mean, there were evangelical Christian leaders at the time back in 2005 who interpreted Hurricane Katrina as God's judgment on the people of New Orleans for their sins. And I was like, wow, how early modern. <laughs> I was like, it's still around. So, so that honestly is kind of, I think, is the genesis of the project is an actual flood <laughs> that happened as I was, I was getting started. So the, the dissertation I ended up writing was kind of more generally about Earth history in the early Enlightenment about the earth as a interdisciplinary objective inquiry. But then as I revised the dissertation into the book, I came back to the flood and it became front and center of the book again because I realized that the flood, not just in the early enlightenment, but throughout the early modern period. So from the, you know, the book is, you know, from roughly the late 16th to the early 18th centuries, that accounts of Noah's flood from this period really exemplified all of the things that I wanted to say about why Earth history was so interesting and important in early modern Europe, right? I mean, so the flood really vividly demonstrated their interest in the intersection of human and natural history, planetary scale, right? So in the early modern period, the history of the Earth was never just about nature's history. It was always about people too, and the way that they impacted and were impacted by changes in the natural world. The flood really vividly showed the way that early modern Europeans began to think about the human species, to put it in modern terms, as capable of environmental destruction, as agents of environmental change. So this was another thing that was kind of surprising to me that came out of my research, the way that that I think the disaster studies literature maybe didn't really prepare me for was the way that early modern Europeans didn't blame God for the flood. They blamed themselves. They were like, sure, God had to kind of physically move the waters, but really, you know, the moral responsibility kind of lies with our, our forefathers and their, their sinful behavior that, that 
provoked God to take this step. The flood was a way of thinking about humanity's environmental agency on a planetary scale, which was also something that I really wanted to emphasize. I mean, there's been really great scholarship maybe in the last 10 years or so showing how early modern Europeans saw themselves as agents of environmental either you know improvement or destruction on local scales. And I kind of just wanted to build on that literature and show that actually there was thinking about uh, at least environmental destruction that humans had caused on a planetary scale as well, which the kind of traditional narrative had said wasn't even thinkable until maybe sometime in the 19th century. I really found it striking how your analyses, which stem from pre-modern texts and histories, resonate with contemporary discussions and vocabularies. Would you be able to expand a little bit on this aspect and tell us more of the ways in which the book engages with the fact that some of the concepts and vocabularies of the Anthropocene circulated well before the term was invented as a word, particularly when it comes to view humans as agents of global change and perhaps considering the relationship between nature and humans in general. I, I really tried to walk a fine line in the book between not being anachronistic in the way I described kind of early modern modes of environmental thought, while also really wanting to push back against the notion that the idea of the Anthropocene, kind of the idea of humans being able to instigate geological change on human timescales, on a planetary scale, uh, is just is not a new concept. It's an old one. It's not modern. It's early modern. Uh, or maybe even older. Like, I, I hope that a medievalist <laughs> yourself or somebody, you know, that other people do the work to also show the way that this concept showed up in non-European cultures in before the 1580s when my book pops up. I, I certainly don't want to claim priority for my particular actors, for Europeans in general. But just to say that I think it's not about reassigning priority for discovery of anthropogenic climate change. That's not, that's not what I'm trying to do. But I do think it's important to really insist that the Anthropocene concept was, a, was at least a, a pre-modern and early modern concept. I think for a couple of reasons. I guess, you know, this has maybe changed in the last few years, but as I was writing the book, just feeling like some of the Anthropocene discourse, especially that was happening in the humanities, though, you know, kind of piggybacking off the natural sciences was a little bit, I don't know, maybe almost like self-congratulatory that, you know, like we, you know, we're doing this and we have now recognize that we're doing this. And it was almost like, give yourself a pat on the back, I, you know? And there was almost a weird element of self-congratulation for having affected those kind of transformations in the non-human world and for having figured out that that was what we were doing by accident. And, you know, and I think I was really inspired to push back on that by an article in, in Critical Inquiry by Jean-Baptiste Poisson and Fabien Locher, maybe in 2011-2012, where they're sort of talking about how the recognition of anthropogenic environmental destruction was pretty widespread in 19th century Europe, particularly in imperial contexts, but then they kind of did it anyway. So they were sort of pushing back on that, on a kind of triumphant, you know, history of increasing scientific progress by saying like, look, people have known about what they were doing in the environment for a really long time and they did it anyway. So we shouldn't feel too proud of ourselves for having figured out what we're doing to the climate right now. So, so that was part of it. And I also, I also really wanted to insist on the pre-modernity of the Anthropocene concept in order to kind of highlight the role of 
religion, the importance of religion to the history of climate science and to the history of the earth sciences more generally, right? Where in the latter, religion has traditionally been seen as a kind of stumbling block to the development of modern geology and religion barely surfaces at all in accounts of the history of climate science and climate theory. And so I really just wanted to highlight how religion has actually played a really key role in both of those, primarily through the way that the narrative of Noah's flood provided this kind of conceptual narrative structure in which humanity's planetary agency, you know, to put it in modern terms, could kind of be thought and elaborated. And I think, um, as you point out, that there is a lot to learn from analyses that consider the role of human agency and human responsibility in pre-modern conceptions of the environment. So I have a question about the role of sin in ways of understanding flood. Sin has a big role in your discussion of Noah's flood in relationship to human responsibility. And since you also mentioned religious approaches to contemporary floods, I was wondering if you think sin might actually be used as a generative intellectual tool in contemporary discussions of the causes of the Anthropocene. Well, I don't know, maybe. It's a really good question whether sin could be deployed, could be a, a generative tool. I feel like my job as a historian in this book was to document the importance of religion to the history of environmental thought, climate science, or earth history. But I see that that centrality of religion in that story is having both positive and negative consequences, both you know at the time and also in terms of its legacy in the modern era. I mean, on the one hand, I think it's important for people, maybe even especially people of faith now, to know that belief in God and belief in climate change can absolutely go hand in hand and should and especially for American Christians and evangelicals to, to know that these two things are not mutually exclusive and, and history shows that. So I guess I would say that's both a matter of correcting the historical record, but also thinking about it in terms of climate action in the present and in the future. But at the same time, you know, there were also really problematic, there were some serious political and intellectual problems with the particular mode of environmental imagining that I document in the book, particularly tied to this question of sin that you raised. So, you know, the notion that we collectively have sinned and we collectively will be punished for it, which is kind of the moral logic around the flood. You know, our ancestors sinned, they brought on the flood, they didn't mean to, but they definitely did, and now we in their early modern present are all suffering from the consequences and it's not our fault but also it's the way we're also kind of justly suffering for the sins of our ancestors i mean that kind of moral logic is still very much a part of at least certain strands of contemporary ways of thinking and talking about climate change and it's wrong <laughs> it's it's not a good account of the causes or consequences of anthropogenic global climate change now, right? Like we did not all do this and we are not all suffering together. I mean, the disparities in causes of climate change as well as the recursive kind of suffering from it are massively, they're massive disparities. So I guess I worry, <laughs> I'm not sure if this is your question and maybe, you know, please like jump in and, and feel free to kind of re redirect me or reframe it. But I guess I feel like there may be a kind of secularized legacy of this kind of collective sin, collective punishment from the early modern period that survives 
and I kind of see it in invocations of a collective we that has messed up and is now being punished, that I think is actually really toxic. <laughs> and that scholars and experts, particularly in recent years, are, are starting to really push back on and highlight instead those disparities in, in cause and effect. But I mean, but maybe tell me more about what you were thinking about sin as a way at, um, of pushing back against or sin as a generative concept. Well, what I found striking is that people in the Levelized Age experienced instances of local flooding, which activated the idea of sin via the story of Noah's flood. So within the Christian context, floods seem to enable a certain reaction in people in terms of overstep limits. And somehow in this perception of flood as punishment of sinful behaviors, I perceive not only the awareness that humans can cause problems, because of their embodiment and their material existence, but also the perception of limits which should be respected. I was wondering if sin could also be seen in these terms as an intellectual tool that is supposed to articulate and shape human desires. That's a great way of thinking about it. That's actually making me think about some of this material in kind of a new way or pushing my thinking forward. You could definitely be right that there that some of the discourse around you know, sin and agency uh, around environmental devastation is maybe a kind of early modern version of a discourse about limits on natural resources. It's making me think, yeah, I mean, a little bit both. I mean, thinking about Camilla Erculiani, the, the late 16th century Italian apothecary who, who features in chapter one, whose kind of account of sinfulness is kind of puzzlingly, vaguely, but very interestingly caught up with her account of human bodies kind of physically taking up too much of the Earth's resources and thus too much of the Earth's Earth and thus precipitating a flood. Similarly, a little bit, I'm thinking of the late 17th century British natural philosopher John Woodward, who I discuss in chapter three, who similarly had a kind of account who seemed to also be hinting that the sin for which God sent the flood had to do with people abusing the, the Earth's natural resources. So I think there probably is a bigger story to be told than the one that I tell here that hopefully you and other people will, will push forward about sin as being a kind of discourse of limits about the boundary line across which people transgress a kind of eco ecological equilibrium and pass over into a tipping point. <laughs> Just going back to something else that is connected with the question of sin and that we mentioned before is perhaps the issue of scale that you discuss in the book as one of the questions activated by Noah's story in terms of the imagination but also in terms of agency and responsibility. You discuss how one of the most important questions posed by the story was that of its scale, whether it was global or not, and if not, what was the area that was affected by the flood. Of course, answering such questions had many implications in terms of the origin and the diversity of human bodies and cultures across the globe. Can you talk about this concept and illustrate some of the ways in which the flood became a site for articulating the tension between local and global, particularly in relation to imperialism and evangelism in the colonial Atlantic? I think one of the main reasons why the flood became the centerpiece of European understandings of Earth history, the centerpiece of all of these accounts, why it was so good to think with is because it was definitionally global for most scholars. Though there was a kind of 
sub debate about whether possibly the flood only covered the old world and maybe not the new, but that was generally regarded as, as heterodox and those people were kind of drummed out of the conversation. And there was a general consensus that the flood was global, which is the reason why it was normally called the universal deluge. It was kind of right there in the name. It's planetary, it covers everything. And I think it was that it didn't need to be proven with natural evidence. At least it could just be kind of posited and then you could sort of go from there. So it provided a built-in framework for thinking on a planetary scale. But to speak to this scaling question, I see various ways in which the story of Noah's flood provided a kind of mechanism for taking local bits of knowledge and piecing it together into a global account. So seeing, like I mentioned, the British naturalist John Woodward, who sent out a query list that was intended for British travelers to use traveling overseas. And it was, a lot of them had to do with things like find find marine fossils inland, right? And then that would be proof of the global extent, you know, proof of something that everybody already knows, but just adding more evidence to the pile. Or ask the locals, uh, ask the indigenous people if they have any flood traditions. Uh, and if they do, then bam, you know, that's Noah's flood. Great, more empirical evidence this time from um, oral traditions. So I think it was kind of useful as a way of putting local stories and local data into, into a global historical account. But it was highly Eurocentric and parochial, and that also involved violence to the historical traditions of non-European peoples. So I guess I would say, oh, since you mentioned too, the kind of connection to empire and evangelism, I mean, so this is something that I address in chapter two of the book, the way that narratives, particularly of the human repopulation of the earth after the flood, played into these histories of the origins of races and nations and peoples in a way that was explicitly meant to kind of justify European sovereignty uh, and missionary efforts in the Americas in particular, and which ended up kind of creating a racial hierarchy and a racial taxonomy as European scholars tried to document, just like figuring out where Noah's sons and grandsons and so on, you know, where they went after the flood, how they got there, when they got there, particularly they were obsessed with the question of how old world humans made it to the new world. So the question of the peopling of the Americas was like a key intellectual question across the long 17th century. And that seemed, I think, to play two roles. One is to prove that all indigenous peoples of the Americas were ultimately Noah's descendants and part of the same biblical story of world history uh, and thus just needed to be kind of brought back into the fold of the Christian faith, right? So it was a way of kind of papering over the violence of conversion and of Christian missionary efforts. But at the same time, these accounts of kind of the repeopling of the earth after the flood were also often pretty explicit about the ancestors of indigenous American nations and civilizations having descended from, you know, the barbaric peoples of Central Asia. So there was a long-standing debate about whether that old world to new world migration happened across the Atlantic or across the Pacific. And eventually, you know, Europeans converged on the idea that it must have been across the Pacific. And I think that was because the idea of an Atlantic crossing was too close for comfort. And it was important to them to kind of deny the navigational ability to cross an open ocean to the ancestors of indigenous Americans, which now we know is false. There was this hunt for the Trans-Pacific land bridge, which would have proved that indigenous Americans were the descendants of 
Tartars and other Central and East Asian peoples that early modern Europeans knew very little about, but were convinced were, were barbaric and racially inferior. So, so I guess I was just fascinated by the way in which these post-flood repeopling stories were both this gesture of universalism, we're all part of the same human family, but also we're all different because we've all, we all like arrived at these places in different points in time. And actually there's this massive geographic and historical difference between, in this case, a colonizer and colonized that helps to kind of justify European imperialism in the Americas. While I was reading through the different chapters, I was kind of amazed and somehow also scared by the fact that the same elements could be arranged in so many different ways, depending on the interests and values that the authors were trying to defend in and with their narratives. In so many ways, reading the book becomes an exercise in disassembling arrangements while moving between scales of historical imagination. In this process, it seems to me that they are inviting readers to question the relationship with historical narratives and concepts of time. I'm thinking especially of your reflections on the tension between Noah's flood and the apocalypse. You show, in fact, how common it was for Protestants and Catholics to pair the two events as crucial turning points in sacred histories involving humans and the natural world, and how at some point historians or natural philosophers preferred to focus on Noah's flood and left the apocalypse aside because the future was viewed as the object of theology. I just thought it was very interesting, and I wonder if you could comment on this, perhaps in relation to the idea of future ability or future history that is re-emerging now. The fact that the apocalypse often played, um, in some cases, a large role in early modern accounts of Earth history, sometimes just kind of lurking around the edges, sometimes were kind of front and center and kind of explicitly paired with um, the flood as kind of the endpoints of human history and the earth as they knew it, like describing a kind of policy that begins with the flood and ends with the apocalypse, the destruction of one world and the creation of another one, is one of the things that I, that got me intrigued about early modern earth history very early on is that, you know, so I mentioned earlier that, you know, I was surprised and entranced by the fact that Early modern earth history was never just about rocks, never just about nature, but also always about people. And similarly, earth history was never just about the past. You know, it was always about the past and the present and sometimes also the future. And so it just made it so clear to me that, well, like the kind of the older way of writing history, the history of geology, and was, you know, seemed to take it as self-evident that, you know, geology became modern when scientists realized that they shouldn't be thinking about the future and should only be thinking about the past and specifically like Earth's deep history, right? That that's the intellectual breakthrough that creates modern geology. And I mean, obviously that was an important breakthrough, but as I argue a little bit in the introduction, I think that's a little bit of a red herring. I mean, the, the discovery or invention, what have you, of deep time was was a huge intellectual breakthrough, but I think it also meant kind of breaking apart natural and human history, right? Once Earth had a deep history that humans didn't play a part of, a kind of sense that human history had to be part of Earth history kind of got tagged as pre-modern and pre-enlightenment left by the wayside, and then it had to be recuperated very contentiously in the 20th century. 
And then similarly, the notion that uh, studying the Earth had to take account of the Earth's fat, you know, future as well as its past, and that its past was, was key to understanding its present and its future also kind of got lost by the wayside in this kind of modernization, uh, institutionalization in the 19th century process, and then had to be recuperated again in the 20th century. So yeah, so I just, I love that about, about early modern earth science. There, this kind of vision of, of recurrent disasters and the notion that you would study a disaster in the past to help you better prepare for disasters in the future. I mean, I grew up in Southern California doing earthquake drills in school. So I think possibly the early modern European notion of kind of past and future disasters, recurrent disasters, maybe really resonated with me. And maybe that's part of the reason why I was drawn to that as a topic of study. But I think there was something important that was lost and is now being recuperated about that kind of early modern vision of planetary disaster that could, could kind of resurface if, if we're not careful that became seen as, as, as kind of stupidly pre-modern and superstitious, but I think there was a kernel of something important there. Yeah, I, I guess like, um, like the stories you, you unravel and reconstruct in the book somehow um, help um, understanding how ideas circulated and how like recirculating those ideas now can actually improve the way we think about so many concepts on like earth history and like the role of the time and future how we, what's the relationship between historians and future and the future so uh, we talked at uh, length about different topics and um, as we like transition to the towards the end um, my question would be what do you think is the most important lesson um, we can learn from frequenting the pre-modern arrangements of such ideas? No, I mean, maybe just to kind of continue the line of thought from the last question a little bit, I'm sort of still thinking about what you were saying and about how this early modern mode of imagining the global environment as, as impacted by humans, as impacting humans, I'm not advocating for it, <laughs> you know, I'm not, you know, that as, as I point out, uh, particularly, you know, in, in the, the chapter on scientific racism or in the chapter on the Republic of Letters and the kind of massive empirical holes in their global data set, you know, that there were a lot of problems with this, the particular way of imagining the global environment that I document in the book. But I guess, as I was saying in response to your last question too, I guess there's a, another part of me that feels like there, there were things about this early modern mode that are maybe interesting and useful and important for us now as we face the challenge of you know, coming to grips with the environmental devastation that's happened on local and global scales, particularly you know, during the Great Acceleration or farther back since the invention of the fossil fuel economy. And, you know, and maybe this just shows something about my own I don't know, affection in some ways for some of the, the characters and the texts that I describe, uh, even as I, I critique them, that I, I think that the, you know, that there, there was maybe a kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater that happened when this, this mode that I document was kind of overturned in favor of a modern, institutionalized, secularized mode of understanding the earth in which you know the natural sciences and human sciences were were hived off from one another so yeah i'm not i'm not sure if there is like that's a good question like what is the one the one lesson that i would like people to to bring away from this maybe i can help like me as a graduate student um what i learned i think from this it's like to be careful to handle like ideas carefully and also 
be careful about the narratives I create. It's difficult to articulate one lesson, but certainly there are lots of lessons that can be learned from the book. <laughs> ah, no, I, th I, I think that's a really good way of, of summing up, you know, this, you know, kind of thinking in a higher order way about what it means to do environmental history, intellectual history, particularly kind of the history of environmental thought, um, the history of climate theory, to say that, you know, maybe the, this past can be a resource for us as we try to come up with new concepts and narratives to describe what's happening and to predict the variety of scenarios that might happen, that the past can be a resource, but at the same time, you know, that we always need to be really live, both to the aspects of past modes of environmental imagining that were problematic and deserve critique, and that that critical mode might also help us in the present to be more self-reflexive and more critical about the terms and the concepts and the narratives that we use uh, to describe environmental change. Yeah, so thank you so much for this uh, very rich conversation and for like um, such a rich uh, book and I highly recommend this. <laughs> Well, thank you so much um, uh, for, for being in conversation with me and for, for reading the book. And, you know, and thanks again to the Journal of the History of Ideas for this incredible honor. I feel, I feel very honored and very flattered by it. Yeah, again, thanks, thanks for reading. Thanks for talking. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm eager and excited to see how, how these conversations move forward.